Welcome back to another episode of uh, Watching YouTube with me, Kevin. I want to start right away by talking about the prosecuting of Donald Trump uh, because what's really interesting is uh, there's a pretty left-leaning article and newspaper organization that just came out and said, wait a minute, maybe a big mistake is being made. And this was mind-blowing to me because I'm a big fan of trying to understand corporate and media biases. And I'm blown away that The Economist said that potentially prosecuting Trump in the Stormy Daniels case looks like a mistake. This blows my mind because I'll tell you, I listen to The Economist a lot, but I know they are, they, they definitely lean left. I wouldn't say they're super far left. They're sort of like there's the middle and then they're just as far left as The Wall Street Journal is to the right. But what blows my mind is the media reaction here that The Economist would actually, under perp talk, say prosecuting Donald Trump in the Stormy Daniels case looks like a mistake. This blows my mind because really what you have is you have a leftist organization saying, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. Maybe we shouldn't convict or prosecute Donald Trump for, for these crimes. Now, yesterday I did a complete about 40 minute live stream going through the entire uh, indictment, the likely claims in it, the booking process, will he be handcuffed, will he not be, the difference between the Secret Service handcuffing him being Donald Trump's choice, the uh, New York Police Department handcuffing him being the choice of the district attorney, which we don't think will happen, it's more likely the Secret Service would, at the direction of Donald Trump. This is likely to happen next week where Donald Trump will be booked and then enter his non-guilty plea during the arraignment. If, if you want the complete details to that, watch the other video. Just type into YouTube, meet Kevin, Donald Trump indictment. You'll see everything about it, the history, the background, everything. But regarding this reaction, I have to get through this because I, I think it blows my mind. So first of all, after so much speculation that it seemed America's media might have just repeated uh, echoes, a grand jury indeed indicted the 45th president of the United States. This is, to use a term that is worn out by, or was worn out by the end of the Trump administration, historic. So they've already kind of got this sort of like tone of being a little like, all right, all right, we're kind of over Trump here. And, and they're very clear about that. You'll see at the end of this article, they do not like Trump. But listen to what they say, and it just, it, it blows my mind. Trump has been fundraising for weeks on the back of his potential indictment, which he predicted was coming on March 18th. It turns out to have been one of his more accurate posts. Again, sort of another slam at Trump for potentially hyperbole or exaggerating. But anyway, if Mr. Trump has committed a crime, it would be wrong to duck prosecuting him because it would put stress on America's governing institutions. In other words, if he did indeed commit a crime, of course he should be prosecuted. For example, other presidents uh, like uh, Silvio Mussolini in Italy or Nicolas Sarkozy in France were convicted as well. For, uh, for example, in the case of Sarkozy, he was convicted of one year uh, or one corruption count uh, for which he needed to serve one year in prison after being president of France and a second corruption charge to be served in home confinement. Now, treating a former president like any other citizen though cuts both ways, says The Economist. Now, this is really interesting. They, see on, uh, they say on one hand, you should apply the law equally to everyone. Like nobody's above the law. If somebody committed a crime, they should be prosecuted. But if you're turning a blind eye to a ton of crimes in your city, like New York is, 
why are you looking into this Trump case? Because this isn't like the most clear smoking gun you could have picked. So that's what they say here. They say a prosecutor has to weigh the seriousness of a crime, the likelihood of securing a conviction, and the public interest in securing, not, not like the public's media interest, but like the public safety interest in prosecuting the crime. About, uh, and, and, and then of course in this case, they talk about how potentially half of America is going to look at this uh, trial as impartial and a political weaponization. And the other half of America is going to look at this as like, that's right, we're looking to serve justice. So we've got this real divide in America. Democrats cheering about, yay, Trump's finally gonna come to justice and, and Republicans, why are we weaponizing the district attorney, right? But now here's what I think is very interesting. The Economist says ethics and hypocrisy are not what are on trial in, Man in Manhattan. So in other words, The Economist is like, look, we could bag on his ethics and his hypocrisy all day long. But this is a prosecution about potentially hush money payment where a payment uh, was labeled potentially a legal expense, which is a misdemeanor, but now prosecutors are arguing that this misdemeanor made it a breach of federal and state campaign finance violations, and linking these charges is actually really novel. It's a novel way to try to bring this test, and it's not the strongest case you could bring against Trump. They actually suggest that the case in Georgia is much stronger. So listen to this. The Economist says, while Trump remains a threat, not just to America, but to the rest of the West, remember, they lean pretty left. They say, if Trump is to be prosecuted, it should be for something that cannot be dismissed as a technicality, where the law is clearer. The Manhattan DA's case looks like a mistake. Think about that for a moment. You literally have a leftist paper saying it seems like a mistake to prosecute Donald Trump because this is not a smoking gun case and it's just going to divide America more. If Donald Trump killed somebody and he was caught on video holding a smoking gun, just like any other person, he should be prosecuted and convicted. Nobody is above the law. But in this case, it seems almost like evidence and we don't know yet. We don't actually have the complete indictment and the evidence. That'll come out soon enough. But at least right now, it seems like a lot of this has been strung together to create a pretty loose and potentially not very sticky case against a former president that is making this case look very uh, politically motivated. The Wall Street Journal's editorial board actually had a very similar thing to say. They say, hey, look, maybe there's going to be new evidence coming up. But that new evidence, this is the Wall Street Journal now, right? They lean it a little bit more right. Wall Street Journal says that new evidence better be solid enough that a reasonable voter would find it persuasive. The last thing a politically polarized America needs is a case in which partisans line up on either side like a political O.J. Simpson trial and the prosecution must be seen by the country as an example of fair-minded justice. Now, I find this really incredible. The fact that you have newspapers and, and basically publishers uh, for uh, politics on both sides arguing that this case is a mistake against Donald Trump. Even if you hate Trump's guts, it's a mistake because all you're doing is polarizing America more with what seems like it could be a relatively weak case. So that's pretty incredible to me. 
I'm surprised to see this, especially from The Economist, because I listen to them a lot because they have really good economic information. I try to take out their political bias when I can. But I have to say, both of these papers, they're right. The people on the left and right, they're right here. This is probably not the best case to bring against Donald Trump. Now, though, we got to talk PCE. We've got the PCE numbers coming out right now. And the PCE numbers that we are looking for, inflation numbers, it is the Fed's preferred inflation gauge. Personal income comes in slightly higher at 0.3. The expectation was 0.2. Personal spending comes in slightly lower at 0.2 versus 0.3. Waiting right now for the inflation gauge, which is the deflator month over month, year over year. We still don't have that number. That number should be out in just a moment. Uh, remember, you can now use buy now, pay later on the program. Programs on building your wealth linked down below. You can get into those lifetime access for as little as $30 a month. I believe it's somewhere in the $30 a month. There it is, the deflator numbers. And we have deflator month over month matches 0.3, 0.3. Okay, we got a match. Deflator year over year comes in a little lower. Let's go. 5.0 versus 5.1 expected. 5.4 prior. Excellent, excellent. Oh, we got a revision down on the prior as well. And we got a revision down on the prior month over month deflator from 0.6 to 0.5. This is fantastic. Good news, good news. We've got PCE core deflator month over month. Yes, we got a miss. 0.3. It comes in low. 0.3 versus the 0.4 core expected. This is great especially on the heels of Europe. The European Union just saw core prices accelerate from 5.6 to 5.7% above the expectation of 5.6 in Europe. So this is really good. Uh, I mean, obviously it's not a plummeting, but it's below expectations. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. The last thing we need is more runaway inflation. PCE deflator year over year comes in at 4.6. The expectation and prior were both sitting at 4.7. This is excellent. So what do we have? We have a little bit more income for people. Fantastic. 0.3 versus 0.2. That is good. People, however, are saving a little bit more. Personal spending comes in at 0.2 versus 0.3. Real personal spending, negative 0.1. You have that deflator month over month matching expectations for uh, your headline. Your headline year over year coming in one-tenth below at 5%. We're almost in that 4% range. Let's go. Uh, and you got a prior revision down again of that headline number to 5.3 from 5.4, which is great. And then that month over month number, very, very important. Core PCE deflator, the Fed's favorite numbers here, folks, comes in under expectations. 0.3 versus the 0.4 expected, 4.6 uh, uh, for the uh, year over year instead of the 4.4 expected. And we got a revision down on that month over month uh, core deflator number. This is fantastic. Let's listen to CNBC for a moment while I pull up the actual report. Uh, the Dow was up about 90. It's up 130. Not huge. Yeah, yeah boys. Seeing that Bitcoin move from under 28,000 back above uh, 28,000. And then, uh, as you can see, the 10-year was 355. Now 352 or so, uh, and the two-year uh, also has uh, the yield has has backed off uh, a little bit. But uh, Steve, let's say, go. Let's get reaction to this data from Tyler Beat, a fellow for the Hoover Institution. It's a good fellow, and I, I love when we say a fellow. We got distinguished fellows, good fellows. That's a whole different thing, uh, Tyler. Great movie though, um, and former acting chair of the Council of Economic Advisors. Uh, and All right, these introductions always take forever. Uh, let's just go ahead and get to the report. It's pulling up. Give me just one moment here. Uh, again, this is the Fed's preferred 
inflation measure. This is fantastic news. We're gonna look at the actual uh, document now. Uh, it's, oh, it's <laughs> darn iPad. Stand by, five seconds, this goes fast. Okay, it's right here. All right, so here's the personal income. Uh, increased 72.9 bill, 0.3%. Personal spending rose 0.2%. This gives us a chart of uh, uh, basically the numbers that we just looked at. So if you want to take a screenshot, uh, now's the time. Oh, wait, uh, uh, can I put a banner up? Uh, 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 no, I can't do it right now. That's uh, Anyway, all right. So uh, the increase in current personal income in February was led by an increase in compensation, mainly from wages and salaries. But no, no sign of really a wage price spiral here, right? It's okay that wages are still going up. I, I want people to remember that. When you hear the words, wages are going up, that's not a bad thing. We want wages to go up. We just don't want them to spiral out of control. And by no measures are wages spiraling out of control. By no measures, zero. There's not a single piece of evidence that suggests a wage price spiral is coming. And I say that very passionately because I wanna make sure you could be in a position where, 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 where if we're playing Halo together, all you hear is this. Gain the lead. That's it, that's all I wanna hear. Gain the lead. <laughs> okay, like we, we, we want good news. But look, if all of a sudden this is happening. Lost the lead. You know, we need to know about it. We need to get together and we need to get, you know, off our butt and we need to do something about it. The good news is we're in the lead right now, okay? We don't have a wage price spiral. No, no indicators of a wage price spiral. None. Uh, and, and, and if you don't believe, uh, if you don't believe it, just send me some data because I, I, don't, I don't see it. Just because Walmart raised wages because they lag doesn't mean Walmart's creating a wage price spiral. What it means is Walmart's gonna suck over the next year, in my opinion. Uh, personal outlays increased. Okay, prices. Uh, let's see if we can get some price detail here. Mm, let's go into the charts. All right, related materials. So let's get the full release with the tables. I want all of the tables, please. That way I could look at uh, the pieces inside of the report uh, and see. By the way, heart goes out to that um, journalist in Russia who uh, was just arrested from the Wall Street Journal. Did you know that his last piece that he wrote was basically a hit piece on the Russian economy talking about how not only has the ruble fallen like 20%, but they're basically running out of cash in Russia and their economy is about to collapse. Like, it doesn't surprise me that he posted that from Moscow when he was basically immediately arrested. Don't y'all remember when they started the war in Ukraine? They're like, um, if anybody talks crap about us, we're gonna arrest you. Like. They gave a fair heads up, I feel. And it's it's still terrible. Like, I don't, there's no way I think this guy from the Wall Street Journal should have been arrested. But, um, but yeah, that was ballsy, man. That, like, that's some straight up balls right there. Wow. Uh, and now, this is what they're doing to him in jail. <laughs> Brainwashing. All right, so what do we got? Uh, seasonally adjusted rates. Give me, give me percentages. These numbers are ridiculous. Here we go. This is what I want. All right, so February, 0.3% increase in wages, supplements to wages. Uh, that's over here on the right side. You can see this. That's all 0.3%. That's good. Proprietor's income. Uh, okay, whatever. What do we have over here? Oh, that's going to piss off some people. Rental income of persons with capital consumption adjustment, 1.4%. Uh, that's a pretty dang big move here under the rental income segment. Now, uh, what, what's fascinating about this is 
we expect, widely expect, that the uh, real estate price slowdowns are still to be seen in both PCE, which real estate makes up about 25% of PCE, and, uh, and about 34% of CPI. We, we widely still expect that to come plummeting down. It was just yesterday that, uh, maybe it was the day before yesterday, but Neil Kashkari comes out and says, the rent deflation is coming. Rents are going down. So, so it's coming, which is good. Uh, all right, so personal income on uh, receipts on assets, 0.2, fine. Personal current transfer receipts, 0.5, whatever. Personal consumption expenditures. There's really no good data here. Like, I, give me, give me like the full chart, the full breakdowns. Uh, this gives us some more headlines. Okay, let me try to get some other supplemental charts. This, these charts are done a little bit differently from CPI. Uh, so they don't as easily give us all of the, uh, the various different uh, components. Uh, here we go, what is this? Mm, seasonally adjusted, uh, quarterly rates. No, okay, let me listen to CBC for a sec while I figure this out. I would not break out champagne bottles um, as you know, economists are wont to do quite often, Joe. But but I would say, you know, maybe we can think that things are headed in the right direction again, which is yes. what you would think would happen after these very strong interest rate increases by the Fed. And the question becomes, what does this say about how far the Fed has to go? When you have a good number, maybe you can think something less is needed. Pile on top of that what Tyler and both Megan were talking about, which is what's going to happen to the credit channel. And maybe inflation uh, is, is looking a little more optimistic this morning than it was at 829. All right, more. Uh, you, oh, you thinking? I got it. I got what I was looking for. Right here. This is what I was looking for. Services. Okay. This is really important. So services, uh, seasonally adjusted monthly rate for February services, 0.2%. Thank God. Look at that. Look at the last months, folks. Thank freaking God. Look at the last months. Okay. Look at this, look at this. January, 1.2% for PCE services. December, 0.6%. November, 0.4%. October, 0.5%. And remember, if you multiply these by 12, you could see how hellish this is. That's 6% inflation. That's 4.8%. That's 7.2%. That's, that's like a lot. <laughs> I can't even do the math on that. That's 12 plus 2 times 1.2, that's like 14.4% or something like that. That's crazy. Those are some crazy inflation rates, right, on, on services right here. That's exactly where we do not want to see services, uh, or the seasonally adjusted monthly rates. But look at what we have right here, boys and girls, 2.4%. That right there calls for a celebration and a mention that you should get 12 free stocks using Webull by going to metkevin.com slash Webull and by getting life insurance in as little as five minutes by going to metkevin.com slash life. This, that's actually probably the best line out of this entire report right here. This is fantastic. That's very, very good. So I like to see that. Uh, so really nice move there on uh, services. Okay, personal income disposition. Uh, let's see, then you got expenditures. Yeah, these are goods expenditures. So goods expenditures actually came in at zero. So we've had goods deflation before. See this over here? There in November, December is your goods deflation. Here's goods deflation in, in July and August as well. 
But look what happened in, in, in December and January. In, uh, or sorry, in January, you had 3.6%. That's insane. That, that was why everybody freaked out about the January numbers, right? And then what do you have here? Zero. So you literally have no inflation in goods right now. And not only that, uh, but you have, uh, uh, you know, services inflation plummeting. I mean, this is absolutely fantastic. I like this report. This is a very good report. Uh, let's let's take a look at how uh, uh, El Stockos are doing. So let's go over here. Uh, let's see here. Okay, so we got the QQQ is up about a quarter of a percent. I'm actually surprised it's not up more than that. Uh, because these are some pretty good numbers. I mean, you did get a pop-off. So let's go ahead and show you. Let's drive by. Uh, push that button. Uh, and let's see, because it's green, what do we do? Gain the lead. Yeah. Uh, Tesla is uh, up at point, uh, up about three quarters of a percent. GameStop. Lost the lead. They're a little negative here. Uh, anything moving largely. Let's see, any big, remo uh, big moves here. Uh, Dwack is still up about 9%. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, with the Trump indictment yesterday, we expect a lot of users to kind of track Trump on Truth Social. But but yeah, this is actually a very good reaction. I, I mean, well, it's, it's a modest reaction. It's a good report. Let's listen in here. Then it might be just shown in the price or the interest rate of debt. Megan? Or, yeah, I, yeah, I would say if you look at the senior loan officer surveys, they suggest that actually uh, lending standards have tightened already by the end of January pretty massively up to where we've been at peaks in previous recessions. So there is a question about how much more they really are uh, can yes. or will tighten. Um, and if you look at why the, the banks in the U.S. got into trouble, it's, it's not really because of their... Yeah, I mean, she's basically saying, and I've heard this argument quite a bit over the last few weeks, but basically saying, look, the banking tightening has already happened. Like, there's not going to be much more. And so I think the way to put this is, is very simply, this is a fantastic PCE report. It should make you very excited about transitory inflation potentially actually becoming true. Now, we don't want to get blindly drunk over this, right, and expect that that's it. The problem's over. The Fed is going to have to keep telling us that rates are going to stay high to psychologically convince markets that, crap, the Fed's going to keep the foot on our neck and they're going to drown us in the mud of a recession. But that's exactly the kind of pressure that they need to keep on us to keep getting reports like this. Because that January report, which I think I said 17,000 times, the January reports were a horrible month of seasonal adjustment, bad news. But this report, this Feb report, helps us show that that was just a nonsensical January seasonal adjustment report with a big pull forward into January. Now, actually, something we talked about with course members yesterday, we went deep into uh, uh, some thoughts on Google yesterday, uh, but uh, we actually noticed a little bit of an advertising hiccup, uh, details in the course member live stream from yesterday, but we noticed an advertising hiccup in March thanks to the banking crisis, and that could end up leading to some uh, misses on revenues uh, for some ad companies, uh, thanks to uh, some changes in spending we were seeing in, uh, in, in about uh, mid-March, so interesting. But uh, that also has implications for some of the, uh, the retail companies, which uh, we think potentially did extremely well because of uh, uh, the inclusion of January. Uh, I, I challenge you to do this. This is another thing we were talking about. Uh, we did a fundamental analysis on Lululemon. I challenge you to do this. Look at when Lululemon's calendar 
for the fourth quarter ends. In other words, why did they do so well on their last report? Look at what the last month is of the last quarter uh, that they reported. And, uh, and, and you should go, I see what they did here. <laughs> not, not to cast too much shade, but it, 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 is, it is very interesting, very convenient. So um, with that said, that gives us an update on the inflationary numbers. This is the Fed's preferred inflation gauge, and they're good. This is fantastic. No goods inflation, soft services inflation, and numbers that came in below expectations. These are great. These should motivate you to think about building your wealth in this Nike swoosh recovery by using the services linked down below, whether it's buy now, pay later, or pay in full to get the courses on building your wealth. Check those out, as well as my real estate startup, househack.com. Thanks so much. Now we got to talk about the Fed and uh, what's going on with some of the liquidity uh, craziness after the banking crisis. So let's go catch up on some of this latest regarding the banking crisis. It uh, should give us some pretty good insights into what is going on out there. Right. Uh, give me about 10 more seconds here and let's get these pieces up. Got it and got it. All right, fantastic. All right, next topic, the stabilization. Now we got to talk about the Federal Reserve's actual stabilization of the banking crisis. Yes, the, the banking crisis is actually stabilizing. Now this is a little bit mind blowing uh, to folks to hear because the liquidity numbers are actually starting to come down at the Federal Reserve. That's not what we were expecting. We thought this might be the return to QE and that's it. We're screwed. We're turning the money printer back on already. Yikes. Now, fortunately, that is not actually what's continuing. So through the week of March 29th, We've had borrowings outstanding through these new liquidity facilities of $152.6 billion in borrowings. The prior week sat at 163.9. And since this is sort of a, a rolling uh, uh, account, not sort of a constant borrowing, but it sort of, it, it adds it together, not borrowing every single week in this measure here. It's just the total balance outstanding through these facilities. What do we see? We actually see that the facility has shrunk by about $11.3 billion. This is actually outstanding because it, it suggests that, wait a minute, maybe the banking crisis is starting to fade and some of that money is already starting to get paid back to the Federal Reserve, which is fantastic. So what we should see at the Federal Reserve is actually sort of this, this quantitative tightening uh, then we should see this sort of spike of liquidity, this injection, and that should actually slowly start waning down, which is fantastic because the last thing we want is in a, a an inflationary environment to continue to essentially tighten, uh, uh, or, or rather, should I say, loosen by printing more money. Because as the Austrian econom economists tell us, if you expand the money supply, you should expect nothing other than 
inflation. And that's obviously stands in contrast to the uh, Keynesian economists who are generally uh, those who follow the um, uh, thesis of our, our political leaders. So take a look at uh, the chart right here. Total assets outstanding at the Federal Reserve. It's pretty hard to see, but if you look closely enough, you could see that quantitative tightening. You see the explosion of liquidity and look at that folks, boom, an inflection point to the downside. And again, those are the numbers that I mentioned to you. That's outstanding. Now I wanna get into some more of the details here, but I first wanna ask you, do you know how to compliment a farmer? Obviously, you tell him he's outstanding in his field. Yay. <laughs> All right. So anyway, uh, of these two, uh, there are $88.2 billion outstanding in the discount window compared to 110.2 in the prior week uh, and 152.9 total now. The discount window loans, by the way, keep in mind the discount window loans are usually 90-day loans. And the bank term funding facility loans, those shrunk as well. So both the discount window and the bank term funding facility uh, shrunk. Bank term funding facility shrunk from 64.4 to 53.7. So good, fantastic news on shrinkages here. And generally on this channel, we don't like talking about shrinkage. We like talking about expansion. Uh, all right. So now let's look at uh, what some of the reactions on Wall Street are to this. And what I want to do is I want to specifically start by talking about the uh, 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 some of the bank stresses as outlined by T.S. Lombard and Bank of America. T.S. Lombard, they're usually our bears. But let's go first and start with maybe a more neutral piece here from Bank of America. So take a look at this. Bank of America, sentiment has stabilized, but excess tightening remains a concern. What do we have? We cannot declare all clear yet, but actions by policymakers have calmed fears of regional bank spillovers for the moment. Thankfully, we haven't been hearing about more bank failures, which is fantastic. Still, uh, this still leaves uh, open the degree to which bank lending standards might tighten over time. Excess tightening remains a risk. And this is true. A lot of people are measuring that near term, we haven't actually seen any kind of tightening. We haven't seen any kind of funding restrictions near term. That was according to NatWest. Uh, but that tightening may come in the future. Emergency actions have stabilized sentiment. That's fantastic. They give us a little bit of a rundown over here of some of the numbers that we've already gone through, which is great. Uh, we Let's see here. This is the composite tightening indicator. Uh, on loans, this here is sort of a, when they, when you hear composite, it's really just a combination of multiple different indicators together. And really what they're saying is, look, we've already been in this tightening process for over a year here. Uh, this is the unanticipated changes in bank tightening. Uh, and you could actually see an inflection down over here at the end. So of, uh, of Q4 last year. So basically we went into the year with a little less tightening than expected. Uh, we've got a little bit of a review here on GDP, which we covered yesterday, which is good. But let's look at some of their core views. So GDP growth has slowed to 0.9% in 2022 based on the Q4 over Q4 numbers. And we expect it to further decline to negative 0.4% in 2023, fourth quarter over fourth quarter, as the lagged effects of monetary policy and financial conditions cool the economy before recovering in the fourth quarter of 2024. In other words, Bank of America has this core view that we're going to see this kind of recovery, where basically this right here is uh, where we're at a zero line. Bank of America says, hey, right now we're at about 4%, 0.4% GDP. 
we're going to go about negative 0.4. And then by the fourth quarter of 2024, we should be back out at about 0.4% growth, which is below trend growth. Uh, so this could, this, what's still coming here, what is still ahead of us, which I'll highlight in green here, this segment is really still ahead of us and obviously everything to the right of that. That's where we could really see earnings estimates uh, come in slower and maybe Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson will end up being right. A mild recession this year and ongoing goods deflation should lead to disinflation next year. It's interesting. I think a lot of people were hoping that 2023 would be the year of disinflation, but it looks like it might end up being uh, next year before we can actually shout. Gain the lead. Yeah. In uh, headline, PCE grew at 5.7. Well, we just reviewed PCE for this last uh, month, which is I think is more important than the quarter over quarter numbers. Uh, the Fed raised the target for the Fed funds rate uh, to 4.75 to 5, as expected. We no longer expect a 25 BP hike in June and now foresee a terminal rate, so one more hike in May. This is Bank of America's base case, basically. Construction spending moved up about 0.1% in uh, February. It's actually a little bit surprising uh, given the uh, real estate slowdown that you would see a, a, even any kind of take up over here, but you did a little bit. Uh, ISM manufacturing edged up slightly, but still in recessionary territory. Expecting auto uh, seasonally adjusted uh, sales rates basically to drop to 14.3 million for the year in March. That would be the uh, annualized figure. Services still coming in a little bit hotter than, uh, than, than the 50. Anything under 50 is generally a recessionary read. Uh, and so this kind of gives you a, a little bit of a, a core view from Bank of America on some of their thoughts. But now I want to look at T.S. Lombard because they're usually our bears over here. I mean, this person basically has bearish in their name one letter away, and that's their chief economist, Beamish. I haven't heard of that one before. But anyway, global liquidity is drying up. M2 growth is negative year on year. That's the expansion of the money supply is actually negative, which means it's contracting, which is a disinflationary force uh, in the US and already falling at the margin in the Euro area and the United Kingdom. Chinese M1 growth is stalwartedly falling, uh, uh, fa falling to rise significantly. What? I have no idea what that line is. I think they have a typo there, but anyway. Money growth is a good leading indicator of nominal GDP growth in the bank in banking centric economies of Northeast Asia and Europe. Hence our forecast of an L-shaped recovery in Europe uh, and China. Now, L-shape, that's generally not what you want to hear. Uh, L-shape is like down and then very slow recovery. That compares to a Nike swoosh, which looks a lot more like that, right? So L, L is usually not what you want to hear. Just think about it like taking an L. It's bad. Will the systemic drain on deposits slow? Obviously, a lot of people moving to money markets and such. We'll talk about where you might be able to get some yields in just a moment as well. Global liquidity growth is likely to remain slow or negative if policymakers continue as planned. Quantitative tightening, which destroys deposits, was just about justifiable if the economy had been powering ahead, while credit generation which uh, or creation, which generates deposits, counterbalances QT's withdrawals. That just gives you a little background on how QT versus QE works. And uh, to stem the bleeding, banks will have to raise their deposit rates, of course. So could China come to the rescue? If it were the 2010s, right about now would be the time when China would begin repumping the system. However, China uh, has an, uh, uh, China's ability to do so has waned through the 2010s. 
and the transmission of stimulus through that M1 growth, which is ultimately needed to bring a turnaround of things in China, is sputtering loudly. Okay, let me try to translate this so far. Really what they're saying is, look, in the 2010s, China was able to pump uh, uh, the liquidity machines. As we, uh, after we came out of the Great Recession, China was basically able to turn on the money printer and uh, the black line here, which is the uh, year over year uh, money growth was, uh, was positive, uh, massively positive. I could circle right here, massive money printing to get out of the recession, massive printing over here in 2016 as well. Uh, and, and then they kind of just sort of enjoyed the surpluses here. The issue now is there are some real questions about is China actually growing as much as people expect? I referenced this yesterday within another video as well, but this was a Bloomberg live blog on, their, on the Bloomberg.com website. And the reporter wrote the following, while the premier was touting this resurgent tourism industry, and I could generally agree with the premier, I can say as someone who's been booking hotel rooms in China, there are a lot of vacant rooms and they capitalize a lot. Now they don't, they didn't have to inject that opinion in a live blog, but they did. And it really makes me wonder, is China potentially, is T.S. Lombard right here? Is China not able to basically stimulate the way they used to uh, coming out of the Great Recession? And is it likely that, that China basically w won't be very useful in terms of carrying the global economy uh, out of a recession? I think so. I, I think maybe the Chinese recovery could be a little overblown. Here gives you a chart of small bank deposits under particular strain. We see that leaving, obviously. Discount window, we saw that explode, although that's already inflected down. Uh, and they, they don't reflect that inflecting down. But if I were to draw that here, it would, because we just got these numbers late yesterday, it would probably look something like that. So a tiny little inflection down. At least it's not exploding again, which is good. So it really gives us an indication that uh, the, the banking crisis is starting to stabilize. The question now is just, okay, look, if we can't rely on China to carry us out of a recession, then maybe what Bank of America suggests is accurate. Look, we're not going to face another banking crisis, but we're going to have these lags of the tightening that we've already experienced hit us hard by the end of the year. It seems that most economists are projecting a recession somewhere between Q3 and Q4. That's actually when I want to be buying for house hack. I think that's going to be potentially sort of a peak fear, high inventory period of time for real estate. Obviously, we don't have a crystal ball. and We can't guarantee that. We'll be able to make money no matter what I expect in house hack, knock on wood. We do have a funding deadline for accredited investors today, March 31st, and then hopefully we'll get to non-accredited uh, by June-ish or so. It depends. We're expecting to file within uh, the next week or two here. Uh, this is always something else that we're trying to, we're trying to put together a very nice package for the SEC. They haven't looked at any of it yet. And so we're excited to submit that in. But uh, in, in terms of uh, banking stresses, it does, I, I do think there is good news that we can conclude out of this. I think the good news is the banking stresses have faded. The bank contagion has actually been prevented. So like what the policymakers did or not, I've had very strong opinions on this. Uh, they did, you know, in hindsight here, it looks like they did the right thing. They prevented more bank collapses. I think most of us were expecting this was just going to be the beginning of the bank collapses. They prevented more bank collapses. Yeah, there may be some moral hazard in what they did in, in terms of uh, the way uh, the banks were bailed out with taxpayer backstops, uh, especially in Switzerland, but also here in America. 
taxpayers are backstopping Silicon Valley depositors. Uh, you know, outside of that, banking contagion has been limited. The banking crisis, I don't want to say is over, but and, and, and our eyes are still on the banking crisis, but the banking crisis is, is not a crisis anymore. Uh, the crisis has mostly been averted, dare I say. Now, it could pop up again. I think everybody's sort of woken up now to banking risk. But the, the vast majority of this crisis is over. Now we're dealing with the leftover of the crisis, which is inflation, which fortunately today reiterated an inflection down, which is fantastic. So the banking crisis is limited. Inflation is limited. What's the remaining problem? Well, the remaining problem is global and U.S. growth. And global and U.S. growth may shrink us into a recession in Q3 and Q4. So we'll see. But what we ultimately want is the Federal Reserve to U-turn on interest rates, not because of a recession, but because inflation has been conquered. If the Fed cuts rates at the same time as they declare that inflation has been conquered, stocks will skyrocket. I'm highly confident of that. If inflation stays high and the Fed cuts because of stability concerns, the market will tank. So, TBD. But right now, it looks like shallow recession, no banking crisis, and disinflation is still on its way, which is fantastic. But we're not out of the woods yet. And since we're not out of the woods, I have to remind you to get life insurance in as little as five minutes via the link down below. Paid promotion. One day I'll actually fix the spelling of that. You can get 12 free stocks with Weeble by going to metkevin.com slash free. And you can now use buy now, pay later to sign up on the programs of Building Your Wealth link down below. We have Afterpay, Klarna, and Affirm. The most popular is actually Affirm. So shout out to Affirm. While I couldn't invest in your stock past Jan of 2022, Hey, thanks for providing a service to those who want it. See you in the next one. All right, somebody's making fun of my dangly uh, zippers. You're not wrong. Maybe I don't. Maybe I could like tape them up. Well, I guess I didn't even realize that y'all could hear that. But yeah, that's annoying. You're right. Uh, thank you. All right, now we gotta talk about bank deposits. Where should you put your freaking money? We're gonna talk about exactly that after I finish this little piece of co little chunk of coffee over here. The most effective way to drink coffee, it's also the most disgusting way, but the most effective way to drink coffee, actually, you know what, we're going to write that down so, so anybody can reference it in the future. The most effective way to drink coffee. All right, you ready for this? This is a lesson you did not know you even asked for or, or came for. All right. The most effective way to drink coffee is to make yourself black coffee, let it sit to where it gets disgusting and lukewarm for about 30 minutes. Then chug it. Fantastic way to make sure you get your caffeine. However, you have to play the timing game. And most people don't know this about coffee. But guess guess what? how long it takes 
for a cup of coffee to actually fully hit your system. Who knew that I was a doctor? I'm definitely not. Coffee takes this long to get into your system before it starts fading. You ready for this? Peak two hours, which means you're only getting about a half a cup of coffee in after an hour of having a cup of coffee. That's why I'm a big fan of chugging it early in the morning because you really have to plan your day out such that your coffee tries to hit where you're gonna get tired. So if you're gonna get really tired around eight o'clock in the morning because you're waking up early California time because like at 6 a.m. for example now, chug the coffee now so you don't feel like you have to take a nap at eight. If you get really tired after having lunch, like let's say you have lunch at 12 and by two o'clock you're dragging and you can't function anymore, at 11.30, make two cups of coffee, chug those suckers at 12, boom, let's go. I personally recommend stay away from espresso. Uh, it, it makes me sick. Uh, but anyway, that's, uh, that's my strategy. Um, yeah, and this is also my level 99 fire making cup. Uh, yeah, so now we've got to talk about, okay. Elon Musk plans China trip. Oh, that's cool. Actually, let's talk about that, and then we'll talk about deposits. Because I actually have some more Tesla info that I want to talk about anyway. Uh, ew, creamer, gruff. I don't want the calories. <laughs> uh, Lauren has creamer as well. Uh, a lot of, I would say black coffee is disgusting. Like I don't, I don't blame you, but that's all I drink. I don't even drink alcohol anymore. <laughs> all right. Okie dokie. Let's do a quick little Tesla update. Tesla, Bud, and China. We gotta talk Elon Musk. We're gonna talk, yeah, some FUD, unfortunately, but we're also going to talk what potential is going on with China. Now this I am actually very excited about. So let's start with the good news and then we'll get into some of the bad news, including some sentiment FUD, not so great. Let's talk about this because as you know, I'm a huge Tesla shareholder. Uh, I have an actively managed uh, ETF. It's, it's one of our uh, largest positions, big fan of that. You can learn more by going to meet Kevin Dot com. Uh, that's also where you'll be able to learn more about my courses on building your wealth, my affiliates like life insurance or Weeble or whatever. It's all at meetkevin.com. And even though I'm a licensed financial advisor, I can't give personalized financial advice to you unless, you know, obviously we had like a contract and we're doing personal financial advice. But in general, I like to provide financial insight and commentary. And what do we have here? So Elon Musk plans trip to meet Premier. Now, I want you to know this. Before we read exactly what's happening here, the Chinese premier just gave a speech two days ago. I read the entire speech. Well, the, the transcribed version of it because I, I don't read Chinese. But anyway, uh, well, like Mandarin. <laughs> but anyway, um, the, the Chinese premier echoed a lot of what Xi Jinping talked about. And what they did is they talked about how they want to encourage entrepreneurs to come to China, how they actually use Tesla as an example in Chinese propaganda media they, media, they regularly actually use China 
or Tesla as an example of a, a winner, somebody who came to China and blew up because they came to China. China wants more of that because they realize their economy isn't reopening as fast as they'd like. And the best way to encourage growth in GDP is to encourage more manufacturing, something they're good at. Keep in mind, China has gone from manufacturing Barbie dolls to manufacturing really advanced things and doing it better than the rest of the world. Not only advanced cars, advanced phones, like assembling the iPhone, uh, but also chip making. But think about this. China, according to a piece, a phenomenal piece in Foreign Affairs magazine, they, I mean, this was like a 25-page report that I read on China. And what was so phenomenal was uh, the Foreign Affairs talked about how China got into the solar panel industry after 2010, and the Chinese government accelerated the solar panel industry so much that now most solar panels in the world are A, manufactured in China, and B, the best solar panels and the most efficient solar panels are in China. So gone are the days of Chinese manufacturing being the cheap crap. It's actually starting to get really good, and in some cases, better. And in Xi Jinping's speech, he made it very clear that they want to promote the C word, not communism, capitalism. That's insane. Now, what was crazy about the speech, and if you read it, I'm just going to give you the summer here. What was crazy about the speech, which the premier just echoed two days ago, is they make this argument about how great capitalism is for their society. But don't worry, we're still going to have socialism. <laughs> so they're like, common prosperity is still really important. Oh, but capitalism is so great. Common prosperity. So it, was, it was really an interesting duality. So when you think about that in, in regards to China, I want you to think about what this meeting between Elon Musk and the premier could be about. It could actually be about something that I predicted in April of 2022. Now, I was way too early about it. So I was not ahead of the curve on this one. But maybe maybe Elon Musk are listening to my to, to my, uh, my my uh, my converting the converting of them that they need to copy and paste factories in China. That's my opinion now. I don't know. But I actually think copy and pasting Tesla factories in China could be a really good idea, whether it's for Megapacks, which has been rumored, whether it's with battery partnerships, although we're probably going to have a Tesla battery partnership in America with CATL, so that way they're American-made batteries. But maybe where those tax credits don't uh, aren't necessarily uh, uh, impacted, that is the Inflation Reduction Act tax credits, which require certain percentages of cars and batteries to be made in North America, which is why we have Giga Northeast Mexico. Uh, and, and, uh, and we have partnerships between, obviously, Canada, Mexico, and America to make sure that Americans can still get their tax credits via the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, it's important to consider that a lot of Tesla products could be made in China. And I find this quite fascinating. Despite worries about Chinese-American relationships, called Sino-American, Elon Musk plans to visit China in early April to meet with Premier, uh, or the Premier, uh, as reported by Reuters, who cited two sources with direct knowledge of the trip. Tesla's second biggest market, this is via Zero Hedge, by the way, Tesla's second biggest market after the U.S. is China, where the company operates a massive factory in Shanghai. 
The precise timing of the visit hinges on the premier's availability. However, Musk's previous visit in China occurred in early 2020 when he hosted an event at the Shanghai factory. One year earlier, uh, he, he met with others uh, uh, during, uh, or well, well, the same premier uh, who wasn't the premier yet, during which Chinese officials praised the billionaire for investments into the country. This is the same thing that, that has been happening, and it's actually phenomenal. Now, I will say, something we talked about yesterday in the course member live stream, this is what we do. We regularly talk about fundamental analysis and ideas that course members have in the course member live stream. Give you a quick rundown on some issue that came up with Tesla is the possibility that in 2024, individuals won't actually get their tax credit for cars as a rebate on their tax return a year later, but that car sellers, now specifically quoted as dealers, which we're not sure how that'll apply to Tesla since Tesla doesn't have a dealership model, but that could potentially have some cash flow implications for Tesla. Think about this. If Tesla sells about, you know, say 1.2 million United States vehicles, they could have a cash flow impact of about $9 billion. Because right now, if somebody buys a Tesla, you buy a Tesla right now, buy Tesla uh, right now here in March of 23, you don't actually get your tax credit of $7,500 uh, until April of 2024 when you go file your taxes, right? Unless you file quarterly and you do the accounting to try to adjust for that earlier and then you pay a little less in, that's pretty rare. Uh, for most people, they're not actually going to see that money until April of 2024. Uh, and the beauty for Tesla is Tesla gets, let's say the car sells for 50K, Tesla gets the full 50K right away. Whereas the user doesn't get their $7,500 rebate until April of 2024. So that creates a lag time for users. Now by moving that credit up over here, what you actually do is you, in, you motivate the buyer to buy a vehicle sooner which is good because that could lead to more sales. However, now it puts the onus on Tesla to actually recoup that $7,500, which means Tesla would only be getting uh, $42,500. And they would be getting an asset of, a, of basically a payable, a payable of $7,500. Now it's possible that Tesla could negotiate with the US government and say, look, I can't wait a year for this money because on 1.2 million vehicles that, that might be something like nine billion dollars that kills our cash flow okay tesla had free cash flow of like 1.2 billion dollars i think it was last quarter quarter okay that's like per year this is like two years of current free cash flow that would suck now tesla could open a line of credit but then they'd be paying interest on that 7500 dollars for 1.2 million vehicles for a year and obviously it wouldn't be lumpy or it wouldn't all happen at once. It would be spread out over the year. So maybe it wouldn't be 9 billion for the full year. Maybe they'd sell more vehicles because of this. And maybe it's also possible that the government helps sort of provide these rebates earlier, like I said, quarterly for corporations. So maybe it wouldn't be that big of a cash flow impact, but it is something that I personally think bottom line, Tesla will probably end up figuring out but something that'll actually end up being net positive for the consumer. So I'm not too terribly worried about that. I think what's more interesting is actually this sentiment change that's occurring in Tesla. I notice a lot of Tesla bulls, and, and I really consider myself more bullish on Tesla now than I have 
in the past, which is crazy because I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm already pretty bullish on the company. Uh, but I'm also willing to address FUD, right? A lot. Uh, I feel like there are a lot of folks who could see no evil with Tesla. And it's just, no, 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 there's, there's no evil with Tesla. No, 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 there are problems at Tesla too. But one of the interesting things that I'm noticing is a sentiment change. I'm noticing a sentiment change amongst a lot of retail. And this is totally anecdotal, but it's a totally anecdotal sentiment change that I'm noticing on people who are like, leaders of Tesla owner clubs or previous like massive Tesla bulls who all of a sudden are like less enthused about Tesla. Like people who have described themselves as an 11 out of 10 on the Tesla bull scale are like, I'm still a Tesla bull man, but, but I'm like an eight out of 10 right now on Tesla. And I'm thinking to myself, are, are, are you scarred because the stock went down? Like, is this, is this, dare I say, emotion that we're seeing? Uh, of course, people are always going to get emotional. There's no question of that. But I do see a sentiment change that I think is actually somewhat unjustified uh, for Tesla. Uh, but it's something that I, I think is worth pointing out because it is, if you see people around you a little bit more bearish on Tesla, where Tesla is probably firing on the cylinders of manufacturing better than ever before, even though their gross margins are expected to get, take a hit here uh, in Q1, uh, I, I think it's really interesting that uh, that sentiment is changing in a way that implies that uh, Tesla might have a little less retail support than it used to have. So I think that's something to pay attention to. It's anecdotal, so pay attention to it in your area and see what you're seeing. But personally, I think probably the biggest reason for that would be the stock went down. I, I think it's emotion that's playing through. Now, I do want to talk about what the Financial Times just said in two different areas about Tesla. Uh, and uh, these these are potentially not the best uh, stories, but I think they're worth addressing. So I want to address those. Of course, right before I do, I want to remind you to check out the programs on Building Your Wealth link down below. I think I've got phenomenal programs on Building Your Wealth link down below. You can now use Buy Now Pay Later to join them. You can also get life insurance in as little as five minutes. You go to metkevin.com slash life. Do it on your phone and you can actually Apple or Android pay for it recurring and it just auto pays. It's super easy. It's super convenient, super cool. Uh, but on top of that, I encourage you to get 12 free stocks with Weeble. So that way you could do uh, as I do and hop on over here and track your favorite charts, uh, including Tesla, which is up 1% in pre-market right now. Track these and uh, and yeah, check out Tesla and uh, invest. So get 12 free stocks by going to metcavin.com slash free. Okay, so now we got to look at a Financial Times pieces here. The first piece is this one. It says, Tesla cars lose value faster than rival models after price cuts. And they basically say, look, after Tesla cut its prices, Tesla used vehicles have suffered substantially more depreciation uh, than other vehicles. For example, uh, they say here, in contrast to a Model 3's predicted decline in value of 46%, a Polestar bought in January would be worth about 35% less. So they suggest there's a steeper depreciation in Tesla models, potentially making them more expensive to finance or lease in the future, specifically leasing since leasing factors in depreciation, whereas financing doesn't since that depreciation is on you, whereas leasing is on the, the, the uh, leaseor, the lessor, uh, the company that actually owns the car still. And uh, it's it's just a it's a it's a piece that really I think what it's trying to do is su suggest that look, 
because Tesla cut its prices so aggressively, they're probably getting a hit a little bit harder on depreciation curves. I think that could end up being temporary, but it's something to pay attention to because total cost of ownership for the vehicles could go up because of that. And then a second FUD story that came out was this piece, Tesla's price war in China backfires as BYD sales surge. And really what they're doing is they're talking about Tesla having cut prices, leading BYD to also lower some prices at dealerships. And all of a sudden BYD sales are growing 80% year over year. Now, what they do not do in this article, which I think is unfair, they do not separate out the growth of BYD's plug-in hybrid and battery sales. They actually lump those together, suggesting that their sales increased 40% year over year from 34% last year, while Tesla China only grew 7.8% year over year in China. Now, I think that's a little unfair because you're really comparing this plug-in hybrid world uh, you're lumping these two together and comparing those growth rates to Tesla. And I think that's a little disingenuous. Those should be divided out. So I'm not so terribly worried about that. So uh, with that said, look, I think Tesla is still a phenomenal play. I think the valuation is fantastic. I do have some concerns about sentiment, but in terms of fundamentals, I think Tesla is in a phenomenal position and I'm not terribly concerned about the future of Tesla. If anything, I'm super excited about Tesla and I hope you're excited about Tesla as well because yeah, there are always gonna be some FUD stories, but I think Tesla can do some great things in China and actually help China's GDP explode. Thanks for watching. Now we got to talk about sleepy deposits. Oh no, sleepy, sleepy deposits. All right, here we go. Stand by. In a new piece out by Barclays, Barclays alleges that depositors have been awoken. And in this video, I want to show you potentially where you could invest your money or park your cash and earn some of the highest yields presently available. We're going to go through those right after I mention to you what the heck sleepy deposits are. Basically, Barclays makes this argument that suggests, look, if you had cash at a bank account and you're like, look, I've got my money sitting here at the bank. It's really hard to go open a new bank account because my bill pay is here, my QuickBooks is linked, everything is linked to my bank account. Do I really wanna go switch banks right now? No, not really. The banking crisis potentially gave people that kick in the butt to say, nah, I need to switch banks. Oh, I could actually earn yields on my cash? Man. While Barclays alleges that sleepy deposits are now woken up, sleepy deposits being those basically bank customers who stay at a bank even when deposit rates are really, really low, while they're waking up, they say that the first wave of outflows may be over, but the second wave of depositors leaving banks may just be beginning. Now, this could create some fear that there might be more of a banking crisis ahead of us rather than behind us, and that more pain could still happen in the banking sector, I think what's most important is looking at where could you potentially park your money right now to farm the highest yields possible. 
That's what I'm most interested in, and I think it's useful. So what I've gone ahead and done is I put together a list of where I found you can get, and my team found you could get the highest rates on your cash right now. Now, I want you to be very I want to be very clear about this. I'm not affiliated with the companies that I'm about to give you information on. I, I am a licensed financial advisor, but I can't take responsibility for any of these companies. So if you put your money into one of these companies and they go bankrupt, that's on you. I'm just g simply giving you a list of where the highest rates are. So I want to be very clear about that. So yeah, this is not personal financial advice. Even though I'm a licensed financial advisor, I run an ETF. I've got a real estate startup. You can learn more about all this at meetkevin.com. You can even use buy now, pay later to get lifetime access to the courses on building your wealth and get life insurance in as almost five minutes by going to meetkevin.com slash life. You'll learn all about that at meetkevin.com. I want to show you this, but I ain't not taking any responsibility for these companies. So what do we have here? Well, we made a list. Bank slash money market. We have the interest rate on the right and then we have fees over here. Uh, do keep in mind, I also wrote the top 10 banks by assets over here with my team. So we've got JP Morgan, BOFA, uh, Bank of America, Citi, Wells Fargo, US Bank Corp, PNC, Truist, Goldman, TD Bank, Capital One. These are your largest banks by assets. But you can see that they're not really giving you much of a yield. What they're doing is they, they actually have pricing power because they have people stuck in their companies, they they can charge a, or, or offer a lower yield because they don't need to offer people higher yield to have them stay. Maybe until this banking crisis, that could have changed. But here's where you could actually go. The top places to go to get the highest yield on your money as of the last few days. So look at this. CFG Bank is offering 4.7%. Mercury Treasury, 467 Schwab Value Advantage Money Market Funds. Money market funds are exploding right now. They do have small fees, but they're relatively low. For example, if you're at Vanguard already, here's, here's a Vanguard fund that gives you 4.52% with just an 11 basis point fee, very, very low. Now do keep in mind, you have an opportunity cost going into companies like this, because if you have the cash parked here, you're not potentially gaining in the stock market if we do have a Nike swoosh recovery. But if you wanna get into becoming a millionaire through real estate, maybe you're parking your cash here until later in the year, where then you're going to be able to guarantee you have your down payment money to buy a good deal in real estate and really accelerate your wealth pretty quickly getting a wedge deal in real estate. If you don't understand what that means or how to build your wealth in real estate, zero to millionaire, link down below. But what do we have here? Schwab's money market, 4.64. Look, you don't even have to deal with treasuries at this point. You've got UFB Direct, 455. M1 Finance, they're actually offering 4.5. I used to be an affiliate with them. Schwab Value Money Advantage Money Fund over here. You're sitting at a slightly higher fee, so you got a lower and a lower yield over here. Silicon Valley Bank. Now we put them here for the lulls. Obviously, we do not expect you to actually go here, uh, but they were offering 4.5%. Uh, so keep in mind, some of the smaller banks they might be trying to uh, attract you with these higher yields. Uh, but uh, you, you've got some banking risk here, right? Robinhood, I actually think Robinhood has raised this a little bit since this. I think Robinhood yields might be a little bit higher right now. Uh, but uh, so I think this is very, very interesting. Robinhood yields on cash right now. Yeah, they bumped it to 4.4% just a few days ago. That's very interesting. Uh, which is your money in? Uh, so my money, that's a very fair question. My money is right here at JP Morgan. Uh, but that's because I uh, I don't follow my own rules and I actually have a little bit of margin outstanding. 
So I don't have free cash just sitting around. I have a little bit of margin outstanding. Uh, and so my assets are over at uh, JPM. I think JPM's fantastic. Uh, and the rest of my money is sitting in the stock market because I really believe in the Nike swoosh recovery. Uh, so, so I'm pretty much all in on uh, real estate, the Nike swoosh recovery at JP Morgan. I don't care so much about cash yields personally, uh, but I will tell you my startup, Househack, does because Househack is going to buy real estate, right? So we've got about 22.5 million in uh, treasuries. We have uh, Ross Gerber managing those, and so those are yielding about 4.3%. But we also have a gain on those bonds, so the real yield should be more than 4.3% because we bought those bonds back in October, so the real yield is probably higher. And back in October, nobody was offering 4%, just treasuries. So we should have a gain on those bonds, maybe. Uh, but we'll probably hold them to maturity anyway, so it doesn't so much matter. But anyway, this gives you a little bit of an outline here on where you could potentially get some of the greatest yields. Take a screenshot of this entire sheet right here. I'll throw it up one more time. Take a screenshot now. You'll be able to zoom into it and explore all of this. Really appreciate y'all being here. I've got to run to the course member live stream. If you want to be part of those, join, get lifetime access link down below, and we'll see you in the next one. Goodbye.